Thank you both for that so much. Truth be told, we probably should have known that something was off from the beginning, from the reaction of John. In Matthew's Gospel, we meet John here in chapter 3, all camel hair and leather and strange food, holding a revival out in the woods. One day, Matthew tells us, a group of Pharisees and Sadducees decide to knock off work early and go out to see what this guy has to say. And when John sees them, he lets loose. You brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath that is coming, the axe, I tell you, is at the root. Sermons like this, of course, are how he got his nickname, John the Baptist. <laughs> and yet, in this story, he continues. Looking at the gathered crowds, he warns them, I have simply baptized you all with water, but the one who is coming after me he will baptize you with fire. He is so much more powerful than I am that I am not even qualified to carry around his shoes. And so when that person shows up, in today's text, when Jesus comes from Galilee to the Jordan to see John for himself, you and I ought to be tipped off that something strange is going on because here John is flummoxed. As Matthew has introduced him to us, John the Baptist is a force of nature, a man who is very much in control of his world, such as it is. Even the Jewish historian Josephus writes about how King Herod was intimidated by John because of how much authority he held over the people. People followed him. They came to him. They listened to him even when the high and mighty, those Pharisees and Sadducees from a moment ago, even when they showed up, John remained firmly in control. But not here. Here in this text, you and I get to watch as John is caught wrong-footed. Because all this time he has been expecting one thing. And yet he finds himself confronted with another. The man has come. The man he has been preparing the way for, the one with the fire, the one wielding the axe lying at the root has come. 
the one who is supposed to take charge, take control, lead his people onward to redemption, the Messiah. He has finally come, and yet he has come to be baptized, and it is all wrong. No, John says, I don't baptize you. You baptize me. Nobody baptizes you. You don't need baptism. You don't submit to somebody else's authority like this. You are higher than us, better than us, set apart. You're the king. But Jesus takes him aside and has a word. And John, who up to this point has been full of venom and vigor, relents. He agrees. He relinquishes control of the situation to Jesus. Even though he finds himself in a situation that he could not have ever guessed, in a million years. Which takes us to the Isaiah text that Justin read for us. At this point in the book of Isaiah, the people of God are in exile. The walls of Jerusalem have been pulled down. Their temple is destroyed. The royal line of David has been cut off. As the psalmist will write about those years, there by the waters of Babylon we sat down and we wept. Because how could we possibly sing our songs in that foreign land? In a time like that drowning in their own despair, it is not hard to imagine the kind of hero that the Israelites dreamt of in the small hours of the night. And then into their desperation comes this message from the prophet. Starts out well enough. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nations. So far, it would seem, so good. And yet I think it's fair to assume that what comes next came to them as a surprise. He will not cry or lift up his voice. A bruised reed he won't break, a dimly burning wick he will not quench. All of this seems backwards. How in the world 
Will this person bring forth justice if he won't be so bold as to raise his voice? How, how will he redeem his people Israel? If he's going to be so gentle that his actions would not even snap off a bruised reed. For a moment, contrast this image of a meek Messiah with the one that it seems John the Baptist was expecting with fire in his voice and an axe in his hands. For that matter, just contrast it with John. The energy, the power, the aggression, the way that his own sense of self and of God and of justice bleeds through every single word that he speaks. That, it would seem, is what leadership looks like when times are tough. That is the kind of person that folks will get behind, the kind of person that the people of God need both in his time and in Isaiah's. And indeed, even in ours. To lead us all to the promised land. And yet, that's not what we get. That's not who God sent. That is not, God does not send a Messiah who shows up and takes charge. Who grabs the bull by the horns or takes the axe to the root and begins to hack away at all that is wrong. Instead, our Messiah shows up and begins to heal help, and to teach, and to show his people that it is the love of God, not what they assumed to be the power of God, but instead the love of God that would bring about God's justice. In fact, as St. Paul will later write to the Corinthians, that God's power is only ever made perfect in weakness. So that's what we get. A Messiah whose triumphal entry into Jerusalem isn't followed by insurrection or bombast or conquest, but is instead followed by foot washing and forgiveness cross. And in the midst of those things, a meal. This is my body, which is broken for you. This is my blood, which is poured out for you. 
Friends, this morning we find ourselves in the church's season of Epiphany. Epiphany sounds like some big, fancy bit of stained glass language. But it simply means that this is the season when we remember what it is like to learn who our God is for the first time. And so one of the things that we do in Epiphany every year is we read stories of people meeting Jesus for the first time. The Magi who make their way to Bethlehem. John the Baptist here in today's story on the banks of the Jordan. Over the next several weeks, we will read other stories of Jesus' disciples who encounter him for the first time. And in each of these stories, we get to remember for ourselves just how surprising it is that this is who our God is. That this is how God acts. That this is how God saves. And we get to remember that this, as backwards as it seems to us, is not at all what we would have expected or what we would have chosen or what we would have wanted to put our faith in if it had been up to us. We, like so many others, indeed, I think it's safe to say, like John, would have chosen to follow a conquering hero with might in his arms and steel in his hand who would lead us forth to victory. Not a suffering servant who has come to lead us forth to love. And yet, as it turns out, it is precisely this man who conquers. This man, who is the Lord of life and of death, the world's Savior who has come not to rule, but to serve. The Beloved, as the voice from the clouds cries out, with whom the Father is well pleased. Therefore, brothers and sisters, let us keep the feast.